by the blood of the Lamb on a Friday morning. You know, whenever I think about my world and I think about how quickly it's changed and how it's changing all around us, I'm really not amazed at just, I should rephrase that. I actually am very amazed at how quickly it's changed. And when I think back, just my childhood, and I'm not that old, I'm 33, but nonetheless, I'm older than I used to be. And I think back to even just a few years ago on words that I would have never used, you know, how there's all of this new vocabulary that has entered into this very fast and quick changing social media and technology-fueled world. And so I'm sure for many of you, when you first heard the word tweet, you, you weren't sure what it meant, or maybe it was just me. But whenever I first heard of tweets, I thought, well, what's a tweet? Or for, for many of you, if you heard of the word widget, you're like, I don't even know what a widget is. Wait, well, you can Google and find out what a widget is. Or a hashtag. Some of you, I guarantee, don't even know what a hashtag is. Open a Twitter account, and you can find out what a hashtag is. Or there's so many more, like pinning. I heard my wife talking about pinning things on the internet. I was like, what is a pinning? Like, well, it's Pinterest, and that's another social media. There's just so many of these new ways of expressing ourselves via social media, and a world that really has, in the last decade, just accelerated and changing. I, I, I even saw a sign just on the internet. It was really funny. It said, in case of fire, exit the building before tweeting about it. And so everywhere you go, you see people, they're on their phone, and it's like, I want everyone to know what it is that you're doing. And I don't fully comprehend that, but I know that it's popular. And, and yet, as, as we think of ourselves as this modern, you know, 21st century sophisticated people, uh, the reality is that we have a God who is unchanging. And even though we are changing, our world is changing, everything, the internet has changed so many things, and yet, our God is immutable. What that means is that He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And His Word is equally unchanging. And today, we're going to contemplate a thought, something that's in the Bible, that might not be very popular in our modern, you know, sophisticated 21st century world. But nonetheless, it's in God's Word, and it doesn't change. We're considering the various roles in a home. So God has revealed the role for a mother and for a father, and it's in his word. And it may seem old-fashioned or very passe or out of date or not very up with the times for us to think about some of these things, but it's in God's word. And so we have to consider what God's word has to say as we look at these various roles within the family that he has revealed. And so we're continuing this teaching series called Reveal. It's a study in the book of Titus. And so if you haven't been here, just to give you a brief summary, the theme in the book of Titus is revealing the gospel. And so everything about the book of Titus is moving towards everything in our lives individually as a church and every facet of who we are is meant to reveal the beauty and glory of God through his gospel, the message that Christ died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected on our behalf and offers us forgiveness and we will repent and believe in Him. And it is that gospel message that transforms people's lives and that very gospel that we're called to manifest, to reveal. And so today we're talking about revealing the gospel in our homes. 
And so how are we to reveal the gospel at home as a father, a mother, a wife, or whatever your life setting is? Let's read our text for today. It's the book of Titus, chapter 2. Finished chapter 1 last week. We'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. So it's really in the gospel in our homes. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything... They may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. The main idea from this text, the main idea for today's sermon, if you're taking your notes, the main idea is that a gospel-centered home clearly reveals God's glory. So a gospel-centered home clearly reveals God's glory. That's what we're about in our home life is to very clearly display the beauty and majesty and wisdom of God to display His glory in our home. So that's the main idea, is that a gospel-centered home clearly displays God's glory. Now you're learning, well, what does that look like? What exactly is a gospel-centered home? Well, that's the question that we'll look at together as we unpack these verses, is let's learn together from God's Word on how exactly our home should look so that we can then clearly reveal His glory. And the way this works is every single individual described here has a various role to accomplish within the family. So within the family unit, every person has a specific particular role revealed by God. And when we live out those roles, we're being gospel-centered, it all points to Him, and He displays His glory. And so let's read verse 1 again, a little bit more slowly this time, and see the foundation, the basis for this teaching. Verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So as for you, as comparison to those that don't believe in the previous paragraph, as for you, those who do know, and those of you that do love God, he says, what should you do? Teach sound doctrine. So our lives must be consistent with God's word. And so our lives must reveal the gospel itself. And so this paragraph reveals specific roles for each individual person within the household. Now, some will say, no, that doesn't apply to us today. This is the 21st century. We have Facebook and Twitter and Internet, and we're a modern people. And so this doesn't apply to us today. Paul was talking about the first century. He was talking about his context, a very patriarchal first century Greco-Roman context. This doesn't apply to us modern people. And so what he reveals in here, some would argue, doesn't apply to you or me because it was rooted in culture. And yet, 
if you look at this carefully, when he begins his discussion on the various roles for each individual to embrace and live out, he doesn't root the arguments in culture. He roots it in what? Sound doctrine. He is saying that this is sound doctrine. This is from God's word. It is rooted in the gospel. It is not rooted in culture because culture can change and shift and it's ever changing. We're talking about it. It's constantly changing and moving and new words come in and all these new realities. And so culture today will not be the same a year from now. It's going to change. It's constantly changing. But God's word does not change. And so what he's revealing here about the roles for a home are rooted in sound doctrine, the word of God, not in culture that can come and go. This is not an option for us to say, I, I don't like that. Well, you might not. And I'll be honest with you. Some things today you're going to be like, I don't know about that. We need to grapple with it because it is in God's word and it's rooted in sound doctrine. So again, a gospel-centered home reveals very clearly the glory of God. And so let's look at the role of each individual person as revealed in God's word here. The first role described here is the role of grandfather. And so I don't see a whole lot of people in the room that would fall in the category of older men. I know Abu Dhabi is unique. People over 60 can't stay here very easily. So we live in kind of an unusual Abu Dhabi context. But nonetheless, this is what God's revealing the role for a grandfather. Verse 2, let's read it again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, you may not literally be a grandfather here this morning. You may have adult children, but they haven't had their own children yet. So you're, you're not a grandpa yet. Maybe you are an older man, but maybe you don't have children. That absolutely happens. That's part of our world. Not everyone is a grandfather. But he is describing here the reality of being an older gentleman, where you have maybe more of your good years behind you than you do ahead of you. And I say that with most respect because that's Paul's not very PC. He just says older men. And then older women here in a minute, but we'll talk about to the men here first just for a second. If you are an older gentleman here, then I want to just be honest with you, and as I get older, I'm learning this myself, is that there are some potential problems with, with getting older. There are some challenges with getting older, and I, I feel it in my own bones already, is the older we get, we tend to kind of lose our idealism, and we tend to lose sometimes our passion and our zeal. And this happens because this world can be difficult, because this world at times has challenges, and sometimes it's disappointing. And sometimes the older we get, the less satisfying life can feel, and possibly even less fulfilling. And then you add to the fact that as humans, all of us are creatures of habit. That's just how God's made us. And so then, as we get older, a lot of times we have, we have habits or, or attitudes that maybe aren't the best, aren't the most godly attitudes or habits. And we fall into our routines, and these habits can get really entrenched. And then what happens is that as older pe people you know, start getting a little older, what can happen is we're less willing to change because it becomes more difficult. Now, here's the thing. These are all general generalizations, rather. It's not as though this applies to everyone, but these are the potential pitfalls we have to be 
aware of and not fall into these ruts and not, not resist changes that are potentially are a good thing. But to here's the thing. The vision that God has for those that are older is not of a complaining person. Oh, this new world, I don't like it, it's changing. That's not at all. He has this beautiful vision, an important role for those that are old. He says older men are to have faith and love and steadfastness and to be reverent. And he has all of this beautiful language to describe how God indeed has a plan for those that are older. It's not like you, you just are done because your hair turns gray. God still has a plan for you and his redemptive purposes. And there's a key word that describes the role for a grandfather, an older man, and that word is example. And so what is the role of an older gentleman, the role of a grandfather figure, is to be an example, an example to your grown children, an example to your grandchildren, an example to the faith family. You are to be a chief disciple maker in this church. You are to set the example of wisdom and godliness. That is your role as someone who is older. And so if you are here and you are an older gentleman, I just want to ask you a question. Who are you investing in? Which younger man have you taken under your wing to really invest in and show him how to follow Jesus? Who are you discipling? Who are you personally teaching and investing in? That is your role as an older gentleman in this church. That's what it is, is to be an example of Christ-like character. And if you're here and you're thinking, okay, I, I don't know how to do that. I, I would like to be disciple maker. I would like to be doing that in our church, but I'm not really sure how. I may have a life experience, but I don't really know how to do that. Well, come talk to me. And I can show you, I can help you, and I can get you with other younger men that you can then disciple and be intentional with and to really invest in. This is important. This matters. So older men, gentlemen, what I'm talking about here in this grandfather role is of being an example of Christ-like character. Next, we'll talk about the role of grandmother. He talks about them next, verses 3 and 4. He says, older women. Now, I wouldn't say that. I would say seasoned saints, personally. But, uh, but Paul wasn't very PC. He calls men old and women old. I'm sorry, but it's in the Bible. So older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. So Paul now turns his attention, talks to the grandfathers, the older men, called to lead by example, and now he talks to women that are a little bit older. And he tells them that they're likewise, you too should have Christ-like character, and he says you should not be slandering or being addicted to wine. So don't be an alcoholic. It's crazy. And so apparently in Crete, you had the grandmas sitting around drinking a little too much and talking about everyone else. That's the picture he's painting here in the word of these grandma figures really being very self-focused, very focused on themselves and enjoying the bottle a little bit too much. That was the context, but what is the timeless truth here? That a grandmother, an older lady that has life experience, should do what? 
What does he say? Teach. Teach younger women. Train them to love their husbands and to love their children. This is important. And so the key word for an older woman, for this grandmother role in the family, the key word is mentor. And so that is your role. If you are a grandmother, if you are a lady that is not, in, you know, not as long as you used to be, your role is that of a mentor. I ask you the same question. Who are you mentoring? Who are you discipling? Are there younger women that you have intentionally gotten to know that you're investing in? Our church has a lot of young families, and so we need a small army of women that are a little bit older, that have more experience, that are grandma types, that will take the younger women under their wing and invest in them and show them, train them how to love their husbands. Because quite honestly, a lot of young women don't know how. It's hard. Loving a husband's not easy. I am one. My wife can tell you it's not easy. This is important. The role of a grandmother, of an older woman in the faith family, is to intentionally mentor because she has Christ-like character. So the same thing, if, if, you, if you're catching a vision as an older lady and a grandmother and you would like to be intentionally mentoring, then you should be doing that within your own family, but as well here in the faith family. And I can connect with other women that have that same vision, the same passion, and so let's not neglect this. This is critical. So he first speaks to older men, older women. Next, he speaks to mothers. So the role of a mother within the home, verses 4 and 5. So older ladies need to do what? Train the young women to do what? To love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, verse 4, he begins this section on talking to, to mothers, and he says to old women to train younger women, younger wives, younger moms. And so older women are to train or to teach younger women. And then if you go to the end of verse 5, it gives a reason why. Verse 5 ends with that the word of God will not be reviled. And so he's saying in verse 4, you need to teach them something so that God's word won't be reviled, so that God's word won't be condemned, so that God's word can't be spoken ill of. And so what do you think is so important that young mothers and young wives need to know so that the word of God itself will be upheld and God's glory will be displayed? What do they need to know? What's so important? And he says, teach them what? Deep theology, right? Make sure that they know all of their theological positions on every single option under the sun, right? No, he says train them to do what? To love their husbands, to love their children, and to have Christ-like character and to submit to their own husbands, working at home, he says. And so he's describing, now I'm not saying that women can't know theology. No, I'm not saying that. We, should, we all need to know theology. We all need to know God's word. But right here, the scriptures are emphasizing the role of, of wives and of mothers. And it has to do with their character and how they lead their homes and how they love their homes. So the key word here that describes the role of a mother is being grace-filled. And so as a mother, your role is to, into, is to have a home that is grace-filled. You are the chief agents of grace 
in your home. And so a mother is called to display God's beauty and grace in the home. Let's unpack the two topics in here. They're a little bit more challenging. They could take quite a while. We don't have that long, but just briefly, there's two that he describes here that we need to spend some time on. First one, he says that mothers need to be doing what? Working at home. So generally speaking, God has given women a more nurturing heart, a little bit more maternal, if you will, heart, more tender than he's given to men. That's just the way God has made us. And so loving the home is God's design for ladies. And this is good, and this is beautiful. Now, does this mean that women ought not have a career? Does this mean that women should not pursue a career? Now, some would say, yes, I don't agree with them. Why? Well, because there's timeless truths revealed in the scriptures. Like, for example, if you go to Proverbs 31, it describes a virtuous woman. And if you read that text, then you will see that she actually works outside of the home. Now, she does care for her home. That's described clearly in Proverbs 31. But this model of a godly woman also is busy in doing things inside and also outside of her home. We live in an age where, quite honestly, there's this there's perspective where if you're a woman and you have a career, then you're more important. And if you're a woman and you want to stay home with your children, then you look down upon. Now, I do understand in the UAE it's a little bit different. It's a lot of husbands have, have the work visa and the job, and a lot of wives stay at home. And it's very unique in Abu Dhabi. But in most cultural contexts, that isn't the case. Anyone can get a job, and many women now have careers. Is that wrong? Does what Paul describes here when he says working at home, does that mean that women ought not or should not have a career? And I would say absolutely not. Women can and should be educated. And if they desire it and have skills and want to have a career, that's fine for them to do. But the timeless principle still does remain here, that God does design women to have homes that are grace-filled and that the woman becomes kind of a thermostat that sets the temperature for the home being grace-filled. And that is an honor and it is a blessing. And so, ladies, if you have a career, God bless you. Use it for his glory. But you should still make sure that you are leading your home with grace, that you love your husband, that you support him, that you truly invest in your children, and that you, it's very dangerous to find more value, more significance in a career than at home because God has designed you to fill your home with grace. And so we want to make sure that we receive dignity and honor for both for women that have careers and those that are at home. The second thing here is, he says, submitting to your husbands. Now, some of you are thinking, Psh, my husband, you submit to him. I'm not submitting to him. You don't tell me what to do. And this, is, this has to be from the first century because clearly in 21st century, wives ought not submit to their husbands. But we talked earlier, this is not rooted in cultures, rooted in sound doctrine. And so then this must still apply to the 21st century, the wives are called to submit to their husbands. Now, by the way, let's define our terms. When we say submitting to your husbands, we're saying submit to your one husband, not to all men, clearly. 
But what we're talking about here is a voluntary yielding in love. So it's a voluntary yielding in love. Titus 2.4 says for women to submit to their husbands. It does not say, husbands, make sure you submit your wives. It doesn't say that. You won't find that anywhere in here. Husbands, make sure that your wives submit to you. It's not in there. This is not an imposed, this is not a demanding, this is not a woman, I'm in charge. Guys, if you have to remind your wives that she should, should submit to you, then you're doing a bad job. And, and I'll show you why you're in a minute from the next role for, for fathers. But if you have to be reminding her, hey, I'm the man, I'm in charge, submit to me, woman. If, that, if any kind of language like that is happening in your home, then I can assure you, that you were not following God's word and how you should lead your wife. Because the onus here is really more on husbands leading their wives and the wives graciously following. We just read earlier, Tim Ike read out of Ephesians 5, 22-33. That's a very important passage. It's, it's a parallel text where he's writing to the church in Ephesus. Same author, Paul. And in that very important text, he spends a lot more time than just one verse, he, a whole half a chapter on this. And he says, let each of you love his wife as he loves himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so he says that wives should respect their husbands, and the husbands should love their wives. See, ladies, your greatest, deepest need is to feel loved. God made you that way. And I haven't talked to all of you, but I already know. I know that what you want most is to feel cherished, for your husband to know you, for your husband to listen to you, for your husband to sacrifice for you, for your husband to remember what's important to you, for your husband to truly be engaged and to connect with your heart. You want to feel cherished and known and loved. That's the way God has made the female heart, and that's revealed in Ephesians 5. And yet, your husband's greatest and deepest need is to feel respected. That's what he needs the most. I said this before, but it's very important. Husbands are basically five-year-old boys. They haven't grown up that much from then. Now, sure, we've, we've matured, but at our heart, we're the same. The five-year-old boy paints a picture, goes to his mommy, and says, look at what I did. And she says, hey, good job. And his heart and his chest swells. He wants to paint more pictures and impress his mommy that much more. He wants that affirmation. He wants to feel affirmed and respected. Your grown men, ladies, your husbands need you to affirm him. Your husbands need you, ladies, to encourage him. Say, hey, good job. Keep going. You need to be his biggest cheerleader. I see so many wives that don't respect their husbands. They don't speak well of their husbands. They, they never have anything to say that's kind or encouraging in public. I can only imagine in private. You have to be encouraging to him. That's the way God made him. He wants to be respected. And so that's why he says, wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Because that's the key to our hearts that God has given to us. But let's keep talking about this more. Let's go a little bit deeper as we look as far as the father's role. So the mother's role is to be grace-filled, the father. Verses 6 through 8. Verses 6, it says, Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects, 
to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is showing the character of what it is to be a man, to be a father. And the key here for a father's role, a man's role, is to be a godly leader. To be a godly leader. And again, he says very clearly in Ephesians 5, he talks to the man almost the whole chapter, and to the women, he says very little. He says, submit to your husbands, and then he says, make sure that you respect them. And that's all Paul says to women. And in the whole chapter, he's talking to men over and over, saying, you love like Jesus. You sacrifice yourself for your wife. And then he says, and you will keep her pure because you're pure. And then he says that you should be leading your family spiritually, washing her with the word. And so the onus, the responsibility is on husbands to lead like Jesus, sacrificially leading the bride because Jesus loves his bride. That's who we are. And so your marriage is supposed to be a picture. Your marriage is meant to be a beautiful mirror that reflects the gospel itself. Jesus loves his bride. Jesus is committed to his bride. Jesus will never leave his wife. Jesus will never cheat on his wife. Jesus sacrifices for her. Jesus gave his own life for her. That's what he did. He loves her so much that he died on the cross for her. She being an adulteress and she being very unfaithful and unloving to him, and yet he loves his bride. He loves us. And he sacrificed himself for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be the bride that he's going to make clean and bright one day. And when we get to heaven, there's going to be a big meal. But this is not, this is not a graduation meal. This is not a random party. This is a wedding feast, the consummation, so that we will be bright and clean and holy and pure for our groom for eternity to live with and so husbands, you should lead your wives the way Jesus leads the church. With integrity and with purity, with self-sacrifice. And he nourishes us through his word. And so husbands, do you lead your family? Do you lead your family spiritually? Are you the chief lover? And I don't just mean that in, in the bedroom. I mean chief lovers and you love your wife you sacrifice for her. You know her. You listen to her. You talk to her. You remember what's important to her. Are you really loving your wife the way Christ loves the church? And are you teaching your children? Do you spend time opening this book up and teaching your children? Are you praying for your wife? Are you leading your family like a man? So this is for men to man up. This is not to submit your women. This is about you leading the way Jesus leads. You man up and you be a spiritual leader and you do it the way Christ does it. And let me tell you this, guys. If you are sacrificing for your wife and you're loving her, listening to her and leading her, you name me one woman 
who feels so loved and cherished that will say, nope, I'm not following that godly man that sacrifices for me and knows me and meets my needs. I'm not going to follow him. That's insane. Of course she's going to. A godly woman will follow a godly man because that's the way God designed it. This points to the gospel. Jesus leads the church, and the church trusts him because he's trustworthy. A wife is designed to trust her husband and for him to lead her. Your marriage is a picture of the gospel, which is why wives should submit to their husbands because the church submits to Christ. But you have to understand your role. And so, ladies, is to make sure that your home is grace-filled as you show grace, as you follow your husband. And husbands, you should be godly leaders the way Christ leads us. And when we're doing it that way, the gospel is displayed in our marriage. Now, if you're single here, you're thinking, this doesn't apply to me. I came the wrong Friday. I should have stayed home. I could have gotten some more sleep today because this is about marriage. Okay, well, two things. One is do you have this kind of character? Read it again. The character traits are identical nearly to that of elders. It's talking about having Christ-like character. And so are you living life well as a single person so that you are actually ready for this when you get married? But the second question, if you're single here today, is what kind of person are you looking for? Are you really looking for a godly person are you looking for someone that has this kind of character or just someone that looks good? Or someone that would just say, yes, that's not right. Do it God's way. And I assure you, you'll be blessed. Now, this last section is interesting. He talks to slaves. Verse 9, he talks, he says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything, that they're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this last role, we talk about the role of grandfather as an example, role of grandmother as a mentor, role of mother being grace-filled, role of father, a godly leader, leader, and fifthly here, the role of you as an employee. Now you're thinking, well, he's talking about slaves, bond servants. Why is that? in this paragraph talking about the family. Well, it makes sense because in the first century, when he's writing this, slaves were a part of the family. They lived there. They were part of the household. And so the general household included slaves. And so in his conversation here on talking to the family and the household roles, he does include what's very natural, which was slaves. Now, the timeless truth, the principle that applies to us, is as employees. Now, brief side note. Some are thinking, why doesn't Paul condemn slavery? Why does he tell slaves to obey their masters? Why does the Bible describe slavery and not condemn it? Isn't slavery wrong? The answer is, of course it is. Slavery is evil, and it should be condemned. We should not have our rights taken away from us. We should be paid for the work that we do. It's wrong to have slaves. However, you have to understand that the thrust of the gospel is to see lives transformed. Individual people confess and believe in the gospel are transformed. The Bible never focuses on transforming 
the culture as a whole or transforming governments or institutions or structures. It doesn't focus on that. It focuses on transforming individual lives. Here's the key, though. When individuals are transformed, they in turn transform their cultures and their businesses and the structures and, and whole even nations are transformed, but it's transformed by who? Individuals. The, the, the gospel does not say, go change the culture at large. It doesn't work that way. And so he's talking here about you please God, you glorify God in your life setting. And so the, the principle here for us is as employees. And what's that key word there? Submissiveness. That's what he says, be submissive to your manager. What if he's a terrible manager? Be submissive to your manager. You'll display God's glory if you will do that. We must work hard, even when it's hard. We must work hard, even when it's not necessarily fun. Because what we're going to have is God's presence. We'll have his joy and we'll sense his pleasure. Now, as we close here and go into communion, I just want to remind you why this is so important. He's talking about the roles of the family and how it can be gospel-centered. The last phrase in verse 10 is very important. He says, do this, watch that you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The word for adorn there is the word for cosmetics, which is what? Makeup. And so he says, to adorn means to make more attractive. And so women use makeup to look more attractive. That's the point. So when he says here, adorn, he's saying make more attractive. He says make the doctrine of God our Savior, the gospel, more attractive. So what he's saying is when we live gospel-centered lives, grace-filled lives, and our homes are gospel-centered, what happens is the very gospel becomes more attractive. People see it and they say, I want that. I want to be like her. I want to be like him. I don't understand what they have, but I don't have it. I'm missing something because they have this thing called joy that I don't have. And the reason why you have joy is because you have Christ. You've been forgiven. You have eternity ahead of you. And it's, and it's wonderful. And so when we are living for Christ, others see and it adorns. It makes it more attractive. And that's my heart for our church, that we would adorn the doctrine of our Savior of God, that we would make the gospel more attractive. People would see and feel drawn to who we are because of who we believe in. That's our goal, revealing the gospel, revealing God's very glory with how we live our lives. And communion is an important part of this. Communion is a very important picture of this gospel that we believe. And so at this time, I'm going to actually call our men who are going to oversee communion and pass out the elements to come to the front and also ask our worship band to come up as well. And as they're finding their ways to their places, I want to ask you to honestly consider what we're hearing this morning and consider how we are living and how we're leading our families and how our entire life is reflecting the gospel. You see, communion is a very important time of reflection for us to honestly respond to our holy God. See, communion is a memorial, first and foremost. It's where we stop and we remember the forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for us on the cross, forgiveness that we cannot earn 
forgiveness that we do not deserve, that Jesus died in our place. And we remember his sacrifice through the elements. It's also a symbol. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ that was broken for you and hung on the cross. And the juice symbolizes the very blood of Christ that stains that cross that was shed so that you could be forgiven where Christ paid the price. And we reflect on that and say, I want to live a life that is pleasing to him, that shows his beauty and glory with every part of how I live within my role with the life that God has given to me. So it is a memorial, it is a symbol, it's also a prophetic sign. When we partake of the Lord's table, we are saying something, and it points to a greater reality where one day we will be in heaven, and we will partake of that wedding feast. We will sit at the Lord's ultimate table one day in the future, and we will celebrate the victory that Christ has won for us on the cross, and we'll be redeemed, and all of the troubles of this life will be behind us. And so this is a sign that points forward, that encourages us to keep living for Christ every day. But because this is a picture of the gospel, it is only for believers. So if you're here today and you've been kind of coming and seeking and aren't really sure what this is about, we want you to keep coming, keep seeking, keep asking questions. We encourage that. We are so thankful that you're here. But communion is for those that have repented of their sins, have believed in Christ, and want to express that with the faith family through the elements of communion. So this does not save you. Communion has no power to save you. Christ's work on the cross and your faith in him, your faith in Christ alone is what saves you. But this is a powerful picture that shows that you have been saved. So I'm going to ask Russ first.